Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of 16 Minutes, our show where we cover recent headlines the A16Z way. What's hype, what's real, frameworks for thinking about the news, why it matters from our vantage point in tech. I'm Sonal, your host, and just a heads up that there will be no episode next weekend, but we'll pick up the weekend after. This week, however, we're covering two topics. One is a headline that Congress warned tech companies to take action on encryption, or else... The other topic we're covering first is that just this past weekend, J.J. Abrams, the director of the latest Star Wars movie, Rise of Skywalker, premiered the last new trailer for it in the online video game, Fortnite. And let me introduce our A6NZ expert, Jonathan Lai, who's on our consumer team and focuses on gaming and was actually at the Game Awards in LA where Abrams first announced this last week. So John, can you actually start by breaking down why this is news and actually what went down? Yeah. So one of the big sort of industry trends that we're seeing is that games are emerging as the next social network. So they're not just an entertainment product or a piece of software, but these are online worlds where folks are spending hundreds of hours. And what happened over the weekend with the Star Wars and Fortnite collaboration was the trailer for the next installment was actually dropped not in the movie theater and not even on YouTube or Facebook, but actually in-game inside of an impromptu movie theater that was set up inside Fortnite. And essentially, the Millennium Falcon, along with a couple of first-order Star Destroyers, which are the bad guys in the film, they fly into Fortnite and engage in sort of an aerial dogfight. And then finally, the Falcon wins, touches down, and then um, J.J. Abrams comes out of the Falcon. And then he actually gives people a choice of which trailer they want to watch. The players vote, and then everyone watches the trailer inside of the game. And then as a reward for sort of being there, the Falcon also drops off a chest of uh, lightsabers, and then players can sort of choose the color of their lightsaber, which goes into their inventory. So it's interesting, because a commenter on Twitter, the director of creative strategy at Midnight Oil, one of the things he pointed out is that the fact that you had this dogfight was really great because it allowed people to know something interesting was happening before the actual conversation began. So it was like the pre-show before the actual big game. The second thing is you mentioned the lightsabers. And we talk a lot about gaming economies. How do you think this plays out within the merchandise and commerce side of things? I think that this latest collaboration is a great example of how outside game commerce and an in-game virtual goods are increasingly emerging. Ah, interesting. Every time you destroy a tree with that lightsaber, you will remember Rise of the Skywalker which is where you got that first lightsaber. And by the way, it's not the first time because actually Disney with Avengers Endgame dropped like a gauntlet inside Fortnite. And so if you think about it in the commercial today on TV, you know, you don't actually engage with that artifact beyond that. But now inside a game, what's really fascinating about what you're saying is not only is this interactive, but more importantly, persistent because these artifacts will linger in the game and become part of like their toolbox with all their emotes and skins and other objects and craft. And I think the neat thing for both the Avengers collaboration and also the Star Wars one is that there's an element of collectability as well. And it's a limited time promo. You can't get the lightsaber anymore after a period of time. You're essentially contriving a sense of scarcity in a world of abundance because if the metaverse thesis plays out. You have a whole world you can immerse yourself in all the time and blend with the physical and digital and the real life, et cetera. So theoretically, that's just life. It's not just a game. And so to have that sort of forced scarcity actually gets people there. Yeah. Even before the Avengers collaboration with DJ Marshmallow actually gave the first in-game concert inside Fortnite earlier this year. And if I remember correctly, 12 million people or so showed up to actually dance in-game to the concert. And by the way, to put that in context, Fortnite has like 250 million players. Oh yeah, absolutely. And going back to the comments in the metaverse, an in-game concert by Marshmallow or a reveal of the Rise of the Skywalker in-game feels more authentic. 
and feels perhaps more effective than any other form of advertising that marketers have tried outside the game. Okay, so what is the takeaway then for like brands and people thinking about doing this kind of thing? Because not everyone is like a Disney, a marshmallow. So if you're a brand advertiser or a marketer today and you're trying to figure out how to reach Gen Z, there's actually a fairly limited set of options that you have. For the most part, you know, display ads don't really work. They're not on Facebook. Traditional billboard advertising doesn't really work that well. You might find them on um, TikTok or Snapchat, but really the place where kids are spending most of their time today are online worlds like Fortnite, like Roblox, like Minecraft. They're spending hundreds of hours in these games. So if you can meet these folks on their own turf, where they're hanging out naturally. It doesn't feel like an ad that was kind of shoehorned in that detracts from their experience. They're actually having a really cool time in-game, and it gives them something that they can then go and talk about with their friends. I think there were 40 or 50 million YouTube views afterwards. So there's sort of a splash effect that occurs from these in-game events, which then goes out to the traditional channels anyway, right? On Reddit and Twitch, and these events get live-streamed and recordings are made. Yeah, Andrew's also talked a lot about that, which is that there's a sort of inherent, not necessarily virality, but a built-in mechanism when you have the ability to videotape and share these streams. That's right. And I think one of the things that Epic does really, really well is that on the marketing and on the live operations front, they're always thinking of ways they can engage their player base, even with very um, sort of commonplace things like, for example, server maintenance. I'm not sure if you remember the black hole. Ah, the Fortnite black hole, right. Hashtag black hole. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Hashtag Fortnite black hole. It happened just over a month ago, but essentially they took something that was very commonplace, which was server downtime. Which everyone has to do. And they turned it into a social media spectacle. They had the entire map of Fortnite sucked into a black hole. And then anyone that uh, logged into the game from that point forward just saw a black hole. Oh my God, I saw it all over Twitter. There's this black hole, there's a black hole. And you're like, what is going on? One of the top trending Twitter posts was literally just a live video of the black hole, which was funny because it never actually changed at all over the course of like, I think the three day time period that it was on. But then at the end of that, there was essentially a big bang explosion of sorts. And then a new map, Fortnite called it Chapter 2, came out of that black hole. And it was just a great way of getting lapsed players to come back because even if you had stopped playing Fortnite, you couldn't help but notice that all your friends were tweeting and talking about this black hole. It's incredible. It's taking something so standard and basic and turning it into not just a marketing opportunity, but a re-engagement opportunity, everything. So one quick other thing you mentioned earlier, I think it's really interesting that they built a movie theater to do the premiere, which is fascinating to me because it's this whole thing that goes around this topic around skeuomorphism and design where you have to actually reference the older artifact in the digital world when in fact you could actually just invent an entirely new way of presenting the premiere. Right. It doesn't it have to be actually sky, be in a movie theater. Exactly, right. it could be projected into the sky. I think part of it is that inside of Fortnite, it's a sandbox, you can do anything you want. And so you need to have some frame of reference as to what type of behavior is expected of you. And so when the Millennium Falcon touches down and there's like a projector that kind of goes up into a display, everyone's like, oh, okay, got it. So you're basically saying it's like reinforcing existing real-life behaviors as a way to get the behavior you want in the game. That's right. But I would hope over time that we actually invent entirely new ways of interacting with movie premieres in games because you can do so much more besides just pick the color of your lightsaber. That's right. So what are the takeaways for builders of these companies and networks and game developers? I think if you're building a game today, build in a way where it's modular and leaves room for you to change and sort of add additional modes and skins and goods. You never know what your audience might end up doing with your game. In this example, Fortnite was originally built to be a tower defense game. 
where you got together with a group of your friends and zombies would come against you and yeah. you needed to build towers to defend against them. Yeah. And they were able to pivot very quickly from that into Battle Royale, which had come out from PUBG, player-unknown battlegrounds, where it's sort of a Hunger Games mode. A hundred players are parachuted onto an island and then yeah. you sort of fight to be the last person standing. And by the way, a lot of games are adding their own Battle Royale modes, which is great. That's right. Call of Duty, for example, is one of the bigger ones that have done that. And now Fortnite has evolved into hosting concerts and hosting movie trailers. Mm-hmm. And the original creators could not possibly have anticipated all of these mm-hmm. new use cases that have come about, right? But they've been able to build the game in a way that enabled them to respond in an agile fashion to what your uh, player base is doing. I love that way. because that is both a technological infrastructural thing to think modularly, but also a strategic innovation thing. And in particular, I love it because it is a long trend in technology that users will have this idea of emergent behaviors that the creators cannot always anticipate every possible behavior. So, John, bottom line it for me. How should we think about this recent news and event that happened this weekend where Star Wars debuted their latest trailer inside a game. Games are the next social network. They're the next mall, the next sports bar, and in this case, they're the next movie theater. Fantastic. Thank you for doing this episode, John. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Okay, so for our second segment, we're covering a recent CNET headline that Congress warns tech companies, take action on encryption or we will. And the article quotes a warning that this time next year, if the tech industry hasn't found a way to live with it, quote, we will impose our will on you. Before I introduce our ACCNC experts to talk about this heated topic, let me first quickly provide some high-level context. So law enforcement's been worried for a long time, actually goes back decades, about devices, quote, going dark because internet communications technologies, which now includes devices like smartphones, are getting too difficult to intercept in terms of catching communications between bad actors such as terrorists, pedophiles, and other criminals. While tech companies, the most high-profile example was Apple fighting with the FBI a few years ago, help law enforcement where they can, they have said they can't build encryption backdoors into all their systems to help law enforcement break into these devices by default because it's making the system not secure by default for everyone. And there's no such thing as a one-way backdoor that only exposes the bad guys and not the good guys' private information. And also, especially because phones today are basically people's operating systems for their entire lives. And just for terminology, encryption is what secures people's communications and data by encoding it so no one else but the intended recipient can see it. And by the way, when we say crypto in this context, we mean cryptography, which is the same term that's been used to describe the secret codes and ciphers that have hidden information throughout history, even before computers existed. But in the internet era, it's the techniques used to protect the data flowing over networks and between all kinds of computing devices. Recently, however, crypto has also come to be used as shorthand for cryptocurrencies and crypto networks and the blockchain industry, which is not the context in this discussion. So that's a really high-level quick breakdown. Let me welcome our A6NZ experts, Joel De La Garza, our operating partner for security and former CISO of Box, and general partner Martin Casado. Take it away, you guys. I'd love to hear your quick breakdown, too. Well, much like the swallows returning to Capistrano, we are talking about backdooring encryption again. And I think there's a couple really important points to make right out of the gate. The first is that we're all fully supportive of law enforcement and the mission that they're executing on. And the fact that criminals are going dark, that they're starting to use end-to-end encrypted communications is legitimately a problem that we have to come together and address as an industry. It's just that the problem that sort of always comes up is that we have to have these oppressive sort of approaches to backdooring encryption, creating escrow keys, somehow weakening the algorithms that we use. And what we find is that when you implement those sorts of things, the bad guys will start to use that too. So countries that are not aligned against us, criminal organizations, they'll start to use these similar backdoors and they make everyone less safe. 
Ultimately, these mathematical equations and algorithms underline the nature of trust in this new world, and putting back doors and weakening them just undermines trust globally. Yeah, I think with regards to this topic, there's a pretty straightforward discussion, and there's a more complicated discussion. Ooh, tell us both. Start with a straightforward yeah, one. Yeah, so the straightforward discussion is, is any discussion around weakening crypto as a primitive doesn't make a lot of sense. Let's just talk about physical security. There are materials with different physical properties, right? There's ones that are weaker and ones that are stronger. And the ones that are stronger are useful for certain things, like making safes, for example. And so to say, like, oh, crypto is like saying we need weak steel. That's a great analogy. By the way, on that note, just to help people understand the true context of this, there's actually even been an argument that, well, you geniuses in Silicon Valley are so smart. Surely you can figure it out. And I think they think that it's that people are not willing to work on the problem. But then there's weak steel, then it's no longer useful. That means that anybody can exploit it. It's not useful in building secure systems. And hence, we can't build secure systems. So I think that discussion is very simple. It's simply a misunderstanding of the problem. I think what's actually going on is a conflation of two different topics. So there's a separate topic, which is we have systems we build and they should provide backdoors and access to law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing new about this. Lawful intercept in phone systems have been around for a very long time. And so there's a much more complicated discussion around if you build a system with strong crypto, by the way, with like good steel, do you also provide access for law enforcement? And I think that there's outrage on either side of this. And the topic's much more complicated because we do have physical analogs. And you don't have the same level of outrage for those. So if you're saying, okay, so I've got a phone and the phone uses strong cryptography and we should put a backdoor in that cryptography, then the focus is on the cryptography. On the other hand, if I have a phone and I put it in a safe, nobody talks about the steel. Ah, and so, so we should be talking about the systems and access to the systems independent of the cryptography. But somehow we conflate cryptography with a secure system and access. Now, I do think we should have a conversation on what sort of systems should allow third-party access. I had a company that built networking equipment. If you're going to carry voice over that networking equipment, you have to allow lawful intercept. SaaS companies have to provide logs. You know, So we're okay with mandating government access to things. And I think that's a good, rich discussion to have. And I think to that point, in talking with the actual folks who run these investigations, the members of law enforcement, various officials, that actually are the people that are coming up against criminals that have gone dark, they're not actually asking us to go break their cryptography. They're asking for a standardized way that they can get access to the endpoint devices where the communications may be stored, right? And that's a different discussion. And the policy and a lot of the case law around that is still not necessarily fully formed, right? I do want to do one quick myth and facts on end-to-end encryption. I don't think people are all talking about the same thing when they use that phrase and they bandy it about. Could someone do a quick definition and let's quickly talk about where the misconceptions lie? Well, without resorting to the traditional crypto explanation of using Alice and Bob uh, to exchange <laughs> yeah, a secure I'm so message. i those two, my God. Please, no more Alice and Bob. Essentially, I mean, at a, at a high level without getting into the weeds too much, it means that I send you a message that only you can read and there's no one in between that channel that can understand or, or see that what we're communicating about. Right. And of course, the flip side of this, because I remember when Moxie implemented end-to-end encryption in WhatsApp, the thing that a lot of people forget to talk about is that's totally great for when you're in between and something's in transit. But if someone steals your phone and all your messages are in there, they can pretty much read every single thing. 
And by the way, I am much more likely to have my phone stolen than to have someone intercept something in the middle. The funniest thing about this whole situation is that if you look at the Roger Stone investigation, the reason why I reference that is because a lot's been written about it. If you go look at the fact that they were using WhatsApp and Signal to communicate, but they had iCloud backup turned on their phone that <laughs> saved all their messages unencrypted to exactly. iCloud, which let the FBI go get them. Right. Like, there you go, right? Like, that's a, a pretty good indication of how you can find ways around this stuff. I mean, the only way you can actually consume any information as a human being is in plain text. And so, like, the encryption are the pipes that we put stuff in and the safes that we put that in, and we can have discussions on, like, what you put in those pipes and what you put in those safes. But we should not be talking about the pipes and the safes. It just makes no sense. We should be talking about, like, what kind of logging and access you provide to the information going into it, not the actual encryption itself. Yeah, in fact, metadata which seems so innocuous, actually tells you more than anything else sometimes. Like just a timestamp of day and where can tell you much more than even the actual content can. So that's a whole other thing altogether. Yeah, it actually turns out that even encryption, you can determine a tremendous amount of information just by looking at like the size of the information and so forth going on, right? Right. But I think that's a different topic just because I think we need to dispense with the term cryptography in this entire discussion. Take it out. It's just besides the point. That's like talking about steel. It doesn't make any sense. Mm -hmm. To that point, the discussion should be less about kind of the specific instrumentations we use, but more about like to what level we're going to give up these rights to live in a safer society. And the nuanced topic is if you build devices, how much government access do you want to provide? So, for example, I was, when I was a grad student, involved in a CDN. Content delivery network. Yeah, because it was for the public. We were trying to democratize content delivery networks. It turned out that bad actors, for example, pedophiles would use it and Interpol would show up and they want to find it. Now, it is in our interest to work with Interpol to find those people. This had nothing to do with cryptography, but we had to instrument our systems to provide traceability for these types of things in order to do that. And so I do think building systems to allow for traceability and law enforcement And I'm not talking about cryptography, just building systems. It's something we've been doing forever, whether it is master keys, whether it is lawful intercept, et cetera. And that's a good conversation to have. It doesn't make sense in all cases. I think it's very nuanced. But at least we should have that conversation. So you mentioned the concept of a lawful intercept. And that comes out of CALEA, the Communications Assistance for Law Enforcement Act, which was passed in 1994, mandating that all telephone switches, this goes back to the networking routes, include FBI-approved wiretapping capabilities. Well, and, and it's interesting, when you talk to the folks in law enforcement, where they do have really sophisticated physical capabilities going after organized crime. They would bug offices. They would put recording devices in bedrooms. They would get into your desk at home. There is a very well-defined set of boundaries and conditions through which they can do these things. Just because it becomes digital, to Martine's point, doesn't necessarily change those requirements. And that's more of the discussion that we should be having. So this is really helpful for helping think about what discussion we should not be having and what discussion we should be having, which is exactly what I wanted to know. Now, so what are some of the solutions if we remove this from the equation that industry and law enforcement should be thinking about together? I believe that there needs to be some level of private-public partnership when it comes to tracking bad guys on what that should look like as far as what needs to be saved, what level of access, what sort of cooperation. And I don't think you can be categorical about the answer, but I think in general that is needed. So what I would love is for the discussion to what level of private-public partnership should there be and what should that look like. You actually see a break between kind of the direction that enterprise and consumer companies go. When you look at kind of the way that enterprise companies have instrumented their environments, and specifically enterprises with a freemium component where anonymous 
anonymized strangers on the internet can use their systems, they generally will have some sort of capability for you to work with law enforcement, right? And that could be catching pedophiles, it could be dealing with terrorists, whatever the case may be. And then as you start to become a paying customer, you can buy features that give you a warrant canary in the event that you get a request for your data from law enforcement that you're not made aware of. And on the consumer side, you're seeing kind of a different approach there, which is no consumer company necessarily wants to advertise that they're working very closely with the government or with law enforcement, but a lot of them do. And actually, if you look at their security teams, you've got a lot of very large consumer properties with a lot of former law enforcement people there to actually instrument it. And so I think the approach that the government has taken with the enterprise companies is that a carrot works better. And so obviously, the more willing you are to constructively work with law enforcement and to fill some of these use cases, right, the better it can be for your commercial relationship with the government. It's one of those kinds of things where both sides can win. Another thing that's really interesting is if you look historically, American companies, particularly telcos, worked very closely with the government for national security and like defense. And the consensus about this was positive. And now it feels like the pendulum swung all the other way, which is like any sort of cooperation that Google or Facebook does with the government is considered like like huge suspicion, right? Yeah. I think there's just also just a sentiment shift on this as well. And it's probably worth kind of spelunking historically what has worked and what has not worked and not being categorical on either side. Like sometimes we're like, oh, like crypto needs to be weak, which makes no sense. On the other side, we're like, oh, there should be no public-private partnership at all, which makes no sense. Yeah, well, to that point, you know, the telcos working with the government, if you go back to the early days, a lot of the telco networks were built with government money. And if you look at the work that DARPA did to build the internet, fundamentally was financed by the Defense Department. What you're hearing now, or what some of the back-channel information I've heard out of Washington has sort of indicated that there is a real interest to start to expand the coverage that telcos have, so the legal requirements set up under CALEA, to information service providers. So under the current law, information service providers are exempted from providing a lot of this wiretap information to the extent that telcos do. And there is a desire to start to expand it. And sometimes this encryption debate starts to surface as a way to expand that regulatory coverage. Ah, that's fascinating because then that basically means, to put it bluntly, that some internet services companies could be, quote, regulated like a utility and if they're reclassified, you know, as like under common carrier, other rules, et cetera, and would have to then adhere to some of these principles. And that's a whole hoary topic all in and of itself. But the point is that there needs to be mechanisms for partnerships and collaboration and conversations to happen. I'm just so glad you brought this up because I think this is like a perfect focal point of how there's a complicated conversation to have where you literally don't need to say crypto. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. We haven't said it once. No, no, we could have this entire discussion of what level of logging access should they provide without ever saying the word cryptography. I mean, that's the discussion that we should be having. Unfortunately, that's not the discussion we often have. Right. This adversarial dialogue does not help because we should be having a dialogue that actually gets us to the shared outcome of wanting to help law enforcement and protect users at the same time. And exactly exactly to that point, the people that should be leading this discussion is NIST, right? The one that sets the standards. standards and technology. Like, there should be a standard that we have to adhere to if you're providing this information. It should be public. We should debate it. There should be this meaningful discussion that doesn't involve, like, breaking crypto. So that's great because you're sharing some landscape view things. What are some mindsets or shifts that people who are building companies and building products in this space should think about? I mean, the only thing I would say is, of having worked across a couple of systems that these things have touched, just realize that you do have to be aware of the requirements and you do have to implement them. I worked on a software networking solution where we had to implement 
lawful intercept. It was required. Well, that was because of networking and law under Kalia, et cetera, right? Yeah, yeah, that's right. But search engines have to provide this stuff. Online service providers have to provide this stuff. So just like being aware that this discussion exists and what you have to implement, I think is important going into it. So you guys, bottom line it for me, what should be our takeaway with this recent news, which is really old news, decades and decades, come back again today in this modern form, like what's the bottom line? What's old is new again. As long as we continue to Martine's point, you know, to debate whether or not the steel is weak or strong instead of the broader pictures and the impact on our society, then it's never going to really get resolved. Thank you guys for joining this episode. Thank you. Thank you.